Hello everyone, welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. I'm Matthew de Kersaint Girodo and I'm your host. Today I am talking to Richard Whitby, who is an artist living and working in London who mainly works with film and performance. Richard has just had a show open at Jerwood Space in London um, as part, and he's got a new film basically as part of the Jerwood FVU Awards. So the exhibition is called Going Gone and Richard's new film is called The Lost Ones. Me and Richard spoke while he was in production for, actually just before he filmed The Lost Ones. So we speak about him being in the middle of that process. Um, we also speak about what it's like to work with actors and how to kind of host those productions in which uh, you're asking people to do things for you. That's a really interesting part of the discussion. But we begin with the discussion of uh, a kind of long-term project that was the last thing Richard did that was called The Jump Room. The Jump Room is a series of works that came together as a film, some performances, and finally a publication. And it's all based on a conspiracy, um, which is the first thing that I asked Richard to do is uh, get him to explain that conspiracy. Okay, enjoy the podcast. The theory is something that I w was mentioned to me by a family member who is, is a genuine conspiracy theorist, uh, if that makes sense. And the theory roughly is that the American government and military have access to this teleportation technology, which uh, specifically is in the form of a lift. So it's disguised as a, an, an elevator in various different buildings in the US. And if you go get into this lift, then you will get out on the surface of Mars. Well, underneath the surface of Mars. Mm, okay. Uh, and it's it's not a particularly widespread conspiracy uh, right. theory, but <laughs> there are quite a few people. It kind of connects to lots of others, like in a, a kind of conspiracy universe. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, and I suppose one of the one of the things that's brought a bit of attention to that theory is that it's been connected to um, the uh, kind of birther conspiracy around Obama. Ah. Um, but actually, weirdly, the main guy that I researched who's a, th a theorist called Andrew Bashago he basically to he he says that he was part of this uh program people going to Mars uh and that it was a kind of like a um CIA training program almost mm. uh so Andrew Bashago says that he was involved and at the same time that he was involved so was Barack Obama um who then had a different name which was Barry Satoro. And is that how it fits into this birth? Yes, okay, but actually yeah. Bashago uses that whole thing to, to, in a way, praise Obama yeah. and sort of use it as a way to prove how good of a president he is. Um, so he's not part of the birther thing, but, yes. it, but it connects to this kind of, I don't know, at the time, I guess, this kind of sense of otherness around Obama. Mm. Um, but yeah, Bashago uses it as a way of uh, shoring up Obama's presidency which is coming to an end when when this when he was kind of speaking at, at these kind of conferences and stuff. And what happened did he kind of go public with this theory or was it a theory that already existed before he started talking about it? Um I don't know actually. I kind of I know it primarily through his version sure, of it. Yeah. Um I think it kind of keys into this other like a body of theories uh and this thing that people call project Pegasus which is a, a broader range of like teleporting and time travel and you know, like yeah. alien technology and 
Maybe we can get that. Stuff. You'll give me eyes like, we don't even want to get into Project well, Pegasus. I, don't really, I don't know that much about <laughs> it. There was really just this, like, the thing that got me into this uh, theory was quite specifically Andrew Bishago's explanations of it. And right, because he's kind got of, a particular character, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he's got this way of explaining it um, with a kind of high level of very banal detail. Mm. So he, I, I think, presumably, um, to add sort of weight and uh, sort of some kind of believability mm. to his account of it, he speaks of it as if it's just been his regular job. You know, like he just explains it in terms of like what the building is like and going into the building and signing his name on a register and speaking to a security guard, getting in the lift, going to Mars. You know, it's all very kind of flat. Did the person who told you about it, the family member who's kind of into conspiracy stuff, did he take that level of banal detail, or he or she, take that level of banal detail as a, he a really sign just, of veracity? Um, no, he actually didn't go into the theory at all, oh, okay, just like dropped it in as a joke. And I didn't get the joke, so I searched the theory uh, online and then found it through that. Okay, so in a different way then, how come that, that stuff struck you as interesting, the fact that he goes into this kind of banal detail? Um, well, I just found his... I suppose I'm interested in um, kinds of performance and kinds of improvisation. Um, and I think this, this guy, Andrew Bishago, does a lot of interviews and a lot of talks about this stuff. And I suppose it's probably worth mentioning that um, kind of a little bit after some of the material I was looking at was recorded, he sort of tried to run in the pres- for the presidency. No way. So against Trump. So right, he, yeah. wa- he saw himself as like the inheritor of Obama's um, jump room legacy. Yeah. So having been through the same program, supposedly, yes. he was kind of ready in the same way that Obama had been ready. Right, so you mean that. so that's why you're saying it was kind of an affirmation of Obama's presidency because it yeah. was like, look, we're in this elite training program together. He was a good president. I could be a good president. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he he did release like his his list of um, so the the promises that he made in connection to his candidacy, which didn't get very far. Um, what was he for? Republicans or for Democrats? He uh, he was an independent. Oh, okay. Um, so his his like uh, election promises were a really strange mixture of. Like quite good stuff about healthcare, um, but then also like super libertarian stuff, like everyone should carry guns all the time, mm. uh, and also full disclosure of this, these, all these secret programs. So it's quite a strange mix of like quite, in American terms, quite left stuff, but yeah. then really crazy right wing stuff, and then just conspiracy stuff. Yeah, um, it's probably in. <laughs> win the race. Yeah, well, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure how far he got. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, back to what you're asking, he he gives these like really long um, online interviews. Mm. So the main one that I watched um, is about two hours long, and he's really just like riffing on these themes, um, and it's really strange kind of mixture of like outlandish fiction where he's describing all these predatory animals that live on Mars and that attacked him and and Barry like Obama as, <laughs> as he was apparently. Um, and then this kind of level of just like procedural detail. Uh, and I think, I don't know, it just struck me as kind of very um, strange. Yeah. Like this mixture and he's, he's, yeah, it's like you can see him working it out as he's saying it. Mm. Um, yeah. Have you, always, have you always been interested in conspiracy theory because of that kind of... Uh, I think this is the first 
Um, well, I suppose I should say like I've not I've not really um, it's not like an area that I've researched ah, okay. thoroughly yeah, really yeah. at all. It's just this one thing. Mm. But I suppose I did do some work around the time of the financial crash where I had I worked with this colleague who was kind of I suppose in his in his terms educating himself about what was going on with the global financial system, and he really sort of leaned towards you know, this kind of conspiracy mindset where it was like a certain, it was basically all down to the Rothschild family that were like causing all this stuff. Right, yeah. Um, and he, I just had this job, I suppose maybe this is quite a good connection, I had this job which involved standing with this person for a long time, you know, like a kind of minimum wage sort of standing around job. Yeah. So he, uh, he exposed like me and all of our colleagues to this like quite, a uh, torturous level of detail of his like personal take on the financial crash. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I suppose that is connected. Um, but again, that was something that I was I got really interested in his version. Yeah, exactly. Rather than me. you know uh, trying to get to the truth of what he was saying. Or, yeah. And similarly with the jump room stuff, it doesn't. It's kind of awkward to talk about in a sense because if I explain this stuff in this way. It, it, I think it probably sounds quite comical. Um, yes. And that's not really <laughs> yes, my... It definitely does. Yeah. Um, but I'm not really that interested in sort of making fun of the actual theory or yeah. even saying if it's if I believe it's true or false or not. I guess, like, um, I always think, think of this, but, like, as a person, like, I'm sure you're happy to discuss it but as an artist I guess that's not what exactly, drew, you, yeah. drew you into it yeah, yeah so so what did you do that the project was like two years right as far as I can tell two um, years worth of work there's a few performances yeah, and then thereabouts yeah um, an a video installation as well yeah so um, in the end I suppose it, it was a total of uh, three three versions of a two screen video uh, and I had this idea that I could that somewhere in there there was a a format which involved video material sort of traveling between two screens. Um, so, yeah, in a way like teleportation. And that there was a way of kind of adapting material sort of between the screens. Mm. Um, and I, don't, I didn't really find a way to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the idea. So, uh, so I did that in three different ways. Uh, and then eventually that involved kind of scripting um scripting material for two actors to kind of perform uh two different characters who were kind of sometimes appeared that they were speaking to each other so uh one character being this kind of middle-aged male conspiracy theorist and the other character being a sort of young uh service worker so in the final one that character became a, a barista like a mm. london cafe barista um and I suppose that those two characters are supposed to contrast in terms of their performance of very different kinds of fiction, I guess. Mm. One being like a very, argue, arguably a very self-indulgent kind of performance where you're um, explaining this stuff that could be completely made up. The conspiracy um, theorist. The conspiracy theorist. And the other being, so the younger person who's performing this kind of service role is sort of performing this fiction to do with you know, um, adding value to a product, mm. basically. So they're, they're kind of not... Their performance is completely owned by 
the, their employer, yeah. basically. Um, and their job depends on it. Yeah. yeah. So that was there's, of, in the film. There's like the interview, which is a one kind of the interview of the barista, which yeah. is one kind of performance, and then their performance to the customer of yeah, exactly. I yeah. guess like have a nice day style friendliness. Yeah. Well, a bit more than that. The the kind of um, effective economy of of yeah. providing an experience with yeah, your coffee. Yeah. And there's a bit where they're kind of explaining the. I don't know what you call it in coffee, like the kind of tasting notes yes. of a particular um, particular coffee. So, so that was one side of it. Um, and I guess just to say that those those characters only kind of solidified in the final version. Oh, so that's the okay. third version, and that's the one I will have seen, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's two other ones that are kind of more sketch-like. Uh, the middle one was made in uh, on a residency in Korea, so it's with Korean actors, uh, and it's half of it's in Korean mm. which was quite a challenge and uh, yeah kind of a different thing I guess um, but the other things that we did was were uh, yeah these uh, performances that sort of took elements of the stuff that I found interesting in this uh, area and then like offered other artists uh, like a, I don't know a kind of chance to collaborate on something um, I really don't know how to describe those performances very well because they were done very quickly and very kind of uh, in a way without too much um, thought really they're mm -hmm. just kind of they're almost just adaptations of the material from the videos like or the well the research oh, from the okay. it's just like okay there's this stuff like what can we do with it um, the, the one I've seen is called Give Good Give Good right? yeah yeah and it's with Su Su I'm going to pronounce her name. Uh, Suyon Kim. Suyon Kim. Yeah. And Sean. Sean Parkinson. Yeah. And that's almost like a, a musical performance or a sound poetry performance. If that's... Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I think I suppose like I end up thinking about it as like Jump Room the Opera almost. It's yeah, like, sure. Because it ends with you guys. A, yeah. So I suppose um, Sean is an artist that we the three of us have worked together before. And he uh, sings and makes music as his work. Uh, so that's where that kind of musical element comes in. Although I suppose all three of us are quite involved in sound sure. uh, in different ways. And then Suyon is an artist who mostly draws and makes ins installations, but uh, she also works as a barista. Ah. Uh, so she is that where the of, original idea for the for the other character came from? Then her experience as a barista. Um, yeah, possibly. Possibly, um, although I suppose it is still quite a quite an obvious form of that kind of performative yeah, sure. service work. So it might have happened anyway, but yeah, I can't really remember. Anyway, it was great to have her sort of uh, more direct. I mean, I've done lots of service work, but not yeah. not that kind of service work. So she brought this kind of more intimate knowledge of that specific kind of workplace, and she expanded that element of it uh, mm. within that performance. The title "Give Good" is, I think, a slogan from uh starbucks christmas cups last year i think it was like a charity appeal that starbucks oh, had oh i see um she doesn't work at a starbucks but you know she's, so she brought this kind of yeah this kind of more the more the texture of uh yeah. that kind of work yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah <laughs> i'm not quite sure what i brought really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then there's also a book which includes writing 
Yeah. You have to remind me because I actually read the book ages ago in summer when you no, first came to me. Uh, so the the book uh, sort of brought brought uh, documentation of the films and the performances together, but also uh, some drawings, like a set of drawings that I made, uh, a set of drawings that Suyon made, um, an essay by well, not an essay, but a kind of fic- fictive essay, a piece of fiction by a writer called Honor Gavin. Uh, who was commissioned for the book, and then also uh, a reprint of an essay by Virginia Woolf um, about the cinema. Mm. I think it's called The Cinema, or it might be called On the Cinema. I can't quite remember. Yeah, something like Um, that, isn't it? Yeah, so that's an essay from the 20s that has been, obviously it's published in her like collected works, uh, non-fiction works, but it's not, I don't think it's that widely read, and it's quite a, it's quite an interesting take on basically like the potentials of cinematic abstraction. Uh, so mm-hmm. she sort of goes to, it's an account of her having been to the cinema. She says straight away that she's not interested in the cinema. So if you think about a 1920 cinema, it's like silent. Um, it's often stuff that's like adapted from plays. So it might just look like a filmed play uh, or it's a sort of silent version of like a novel. So that's the typical cinema, aside from newsreel footage that she also mentions. Uh, And she says that she's just completely uninterested in that. She doesn't see the point um, when that kind of uh, of literary stuff and dramatic stuff is already done uh, in writing and on the stage. So she sees it as kind of superfluous. But then she uh, sort of recounts having seen this. uh, She describes it in such an amazing way, which I'm not going to be able to kind of paraphrase. Um, but she's, she describes seeing this kind of uh, tadpole shape on the screen and it's like she's describing for a split second not knowing what that is and it actually being completely terrifying and that kind of not knowing and just sort of, yeah, this this abstract image being, mm-hmm. she, she says something like it's it, the image is terror itself. So it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't represent something in the way that the you know, the stagey acting of cinema of that time sort of represents fear. This image sort of becomes fear. Mm. Uh, and then she realises that it's a fault in the projector. So uh, she doesn't say exactly what, maybe it's like the film burning or mm. some piece of like muck in the in the lens or something like that. Um, and it's just, yeah, I think it's a really startling kind of take on, yeah, like this, she sees this potential for abstraction in cinema that at that time didn't really exist or mm. not in the way that she saw cinema anyway and that connects back to i, I was reading your um phd mm. thesis about um these kind of spectacular live events like uh ben-hur live mm. what are the other ones that you talk about um batman live batman live walking with dinosaurs live and then the, and then Olympic, the Olympics, 2012 yeah. Olympics kind yeah. of spectacle. Was that the opening, opening ceremony? The opening right? ceremony, yeah. yeah. And then there's a, there's a kind of whole section in there about the idea of the cinematic and the post-cinematic. Yeah. And I guess that connects to the Virginia Woolf essay as well because it's so crazy to read someone writing about cinema when cinema is like, what, what's the word, in its kind of... It's kind of infancy. Of yeah, still developing. exactly. Yeah, and adolescence, I suppose. In yeah, the 20s. totally. Yeah. It's such a weird. It's so weird the essay because it. Um, it's a bit like reading like I've just been reading like uh, Nietzsche and Adam Smith writing about like democracy, and they're writing about this thing which is just like just one idea among many. Mm. Like what, and it's you know it's new and it's exciting for lots of people, but it's also like, 
you know, something you could just dismiss if you wanted to. Mm. And Virginia Woolf is writing about cinema in that way. Yeah. Which is, yeah, super interesting. Uh, she does have, like, there's a, something that I, I would probably need to give more thought to, but she, there's a, I think a sort of, she doesn't see cinema as a kind of potentially intellectual mode, I guess. The way she uh, describes people who enjoy cinema exactly, is Exactly, they're scathing, like, yeah. um, I don't know how you say it, like, they're, they're just, like, dumb, like, mute. Um, there's something kind of animalistic yeah. to them about, uh, uh, sorry, to them, uh, yeah. to her. Um, and there's a kind of, yeah, there's a kind of weird class thing there. Totally. Um, but, yeah, what was I saying? I mean, obviously she doesn't, she doesn't kind of work within abstraction, but she sees this sort of abstract potential for the masses, maybe. I don't mm. know. I mean, I might be yeah. sort of projecting that onto it. Um, yeah, but I suppose, like, yeah, you mentioning the post-cinema stuff, I suppose, like, in that, in that research, I was proposing that this kind of earlier moment in cinema, in a way maps onto this later mode that we're in now that could be called post-cinema. So where there's sort of, um, I don't know what you'd say, like coagulation of cinema uh, in its early period sort of might have some similarities to its sort of dissipation now. Um, yeah. How does the Virginia Woolf essay fit into that, to the jump room stuff then? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think... So in the film that you've seen, which is the third version, um, uh, which is also the only one that I would let anyone see now, yeah, I sure. think. Um, so we can just talk about it as the <laughs> film. Um, it, it's So I, I tried to construct it so there's three sections to it. Um, so there's, I suppose, in the order that it's edited, it's a looped thing, but so let's say section one is this kind of series of, disjointed images that kind of bounce between the two screens this rhythmic sound as well yeah so i tried to i shot loads of footage uh not randomly but over a long period of time without much uh, intention and then i tried to match them up in kind of pairs so you might get a shot of uh some grass like uh in a on a lawn and then and so you get that on one screen and then on the other screen, uh, just after that, there's a shot of some fake grass in a in an arena kind of space. So this is the kind of teleportation of the images back. Yeah, kind of, or just like trying trying to uh, impose some sort of order uh, and um, yeah, like a, a kind of progression one to the next, uh, almost like a grammar, I guess, like mm. a one thing, then another thing, then another thing, and uh, and it's got that structure of. Uh, it's got some kind of structure. <laughs> um, and then the, that sort of uh, gives way to this period in the middle with the two actors, which begins with this job interview, like you said. Uh, so that's a kind of, even though it's still on two, two screens, it's more straightforwardly cinematic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's people performing to the camera. Uh, there's lighting. There's It's like a higher quality image, or they're both high, higher quality images. And there's a story, like they're, they're both explaining things that have narratives and then the, the section that follows is uh me trying to make something that's more abstract and messy uh so I, I don't know how this how successful this was really uh but there's it's just lots of stuff the way it's shot is uh 
uh, it's objects in water. So it's an underwater camera in a bath and there's lots of basically mess uh, in the water. Uh, some of which is kind of food products that might link to the cafe setting. So there's a bit there's a bit that I quite like that I was quite pleased with that's just like crumbling a muffin into the water. <laughs> uh, but it's on a black background, so it also kind of alludes to space in yeah. some way. Uh, well, a kind of cinematic portrayal of space, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So stuff floating around and Yeah, I really liked how the narrative kind of emerges out of chaos and then kind of tumbles back in. Yeah. In terms of, you know, coherence anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I mean to me, like the um, the time that I was making it, there was a lot of talk about uh, political narrative, mm. and particularly around the Labour Party at that time. So I was making this work, well, sort of thinking about it on the the lead up to the last general election. Right. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about how the Labour Party lacked a narrative, like it needed a strong narrative. Um, and I'm not quite sure how that links to what I was doing, but. Uh, you know, it, it's maybe too much of a stretch to like link that to the cinematic lack no, no, of narrative just, that's, that Wolf yeah, that's is just proposing. immediately what I thought um, of, like the idea that there's a kind of um, the yeah the kind of reactionary and in the Labour Party was so obsessed with having something clearly coherent, and it was um, in an insulting way just kind of describing the members or the people who might vote for the Labour Party as people who needed something simple and clear mm. to grip onto. Yeah. And I guess in the same way that you're reading Virginia Woolf as having a kind of moment of like, oh, like, we can make a kind of popular, popular abstraction through the cinema. Mm. Like, there was another narrative which was that, like, no, people, look, people can understand the kind of, I don't know, new way of doing politics, which is has different levels and different modes of engagement mm, or something. Mm. Yeah, I don't think... I, I, I was never thinking of, like, the Labour Party in 2017 when I was watching yeah, the film, yeah. but, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, and I suppose... I suppose I, I wanted to put something... Because the... Uh, so a critique of, of um, almost any conspiracy theory would be that it's kind of applying a very obvious kind of narrative to very complex um, events and systems. So if you say, like, oh, the government is doing this because they're all aliens and that's why they're bad or something, that's a very kind of simplistic narrative. Um, so I suppose I was trying to think about this idea of, like, narrative good or narrative bad. Mm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the Virginia Woolf thing... Like this potential of abstraction, I think, is really fascinating, but I'm not sure. Um, it, I wouldn't really say that that's a kind of achievable goal for for something. I think also with it makes me think of um, when she describes the reason that she thinks that that tadpole is important is because she has a very strong moment of well, whatever an aff effective reaction of terror, right? Mm. But that isn't, like, if you take that, like, cinema does incorporate those very strong, effective mm. moments into its, mm. f like, into the experience, particularly now with, like, huge screens and huge effects and the ability to kind of inspire terror or or, yeah. or 
whatever yeah. through the kind of spectacular moments of cinema. Yeah, yeah. And they're not abstract in the way that she's describing, but they are abstract in another way in the sense that they're part of a story only in the kind of most basic sense. Mm. It's like, oh, here's an opportunity to show a huge thing appearing in on the screen, yeah. or, you know, or like have some really loud sound or... Mm. They are abstract in terms of the effective qualities which she describes as the desirable outcome, i.e. to yeah. feel something strongly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the... Like, abstraction does exist in a lot of, like, populist forms, but it doesn't exist in, in that kind of modernist way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more like the desired outcome is abstracted and being like, OK, how are we going to hit that button, real like, the hardest we can? Yeah. And I think it's quite... Um, yeah, like, like you say, this kind of... Uh, affect that she's describing I don't really feel like that's part of the conspiracy um, scenario like the, mm. the what the, like Andrew Bushaga would call it like the truth community mm. uh, like it's not it doesn't really seem to contain that kind of horror you know like oh yeah right the government are all aliens like yeah it's like it's all like oh yeah well we already sort of knew that and there's it's I think that kind of I think it's quite interesting. The particular conspiracy theory of the jump room or the wider idea of conspiracy theories. Well, I suppose it's not about, it's not about shock. I feel it's not, there's no reveal because it's already, you already know that everyone's lying to you. So therefore everything, nothing is surprising. But then that's, I mean, that's like, it makes me think of two things. It makes me think of Peter Sloterdijk and his critique of cynical reason. This idea Mm. of like the all, the always already knowledgeable cynic. Someone Mm. who's like, always ready and all they have to do is like look around and find their explanation and whether that's in like yeah, right. you know political theory or conspiracy then they've always got something prepared and then it also makes me think of um, this Sylvan Tompkins this psychologist I've been reading through through Eve Sedgwick about his ideas of um, sorry it's all affect theory stuff just because that's what I've been looking at yeah. at the moment but he had kind of two well he had we go towards positive affects. Obviously, we go towards like happiness and joy. We try and minimise negative affects, and they're kind of the basic. What's the word? Behavioural principles or something. And there's a third one which is like we like to express ourselves. We like to be able to express our emotions. And then there's a fourth one which is like we like to be in control mm. of how and when and for how long we feel emotions. And that and Sylvan Tompkins says this is like the least possible thing. This is almost like a godlike image we have in our head of a being that might ever be able to control their emotions and i think conspiracy theory maybe in there's some modes which are more about expressing horror fear disgust whatever and there's maybe some conspiracy theories which lock into that mode of being which is more like yeah 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 of course they're all aliens because if you look at this new world order thing then this Mm. explains this and then actually that looks into the jump room and the book and everything just starts connecting up and it it implies that you have a level of control over what is obviously a massively complex mm. world or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about yeah. lost ones. Yeah. So you've just come from a press junket for the announcement. <laughs> Definitely not a junket. I like uh, let's call it a junket. I don't really know what a junket is. Well but before like we did it, I ima- I was imagining like a press conference before a football match, but it wasn't like that. <laughs> so what was it for? Sorry, say it was what for, it's for. Um the 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 well the whole thing was for the Joe Woods Joe Wood Arts's program for the next year and uh, I'm doing the Joe Woods Film and Video Umbrella Commission amazing um, for this year which is yeah very very um, 
yeah, great. <laughs> but did you have, you didn't have to make any kind of statement or... I didn't, I didn't, I didn't no do anything. No questions. I just ate, uh, ate some stuff and drank a cup yeah. of coffee. So I was like a prop, probably. basically. Oh, I see, um, okay. uh, But yeah, it was nice. It was a yeah, cool. relaxed thing. And so this project is called The Lost, the Lost Ones. Yeah, yeah. So this is a um, project that is sort of trying to... Um, I don't know how to phrase this, but it's, it's basically using the uh, what we sort of think of now as the hostile environment as a set of uh, kind of political um, political aims that are manifest as bureaucratic systems. This is the hostile environment policy of the yeah. UK immigration system. Yes, uh, brought in under our current prime yeah. minister um, when she was home secretary. Uh, so this is, to me, my interpretation of this set of policies uh, is that it tries to um, achieve a reduction in immigration um, through making the processes of, of applying for residence status so difficult that people will give up or be priced out of it or not be able to understand a uh, very complex language uh, in a language that's not their native one. Um, so I suppose like the stuff that I maybe know more about is not, uh, things like the asylum system. It's the, the spouse, uh, spousals, uh, what's it called? Uh, spousal visa system, sure. something like that. Um, and the other, other systems like the, if you've got a job that's high paying enough to settle, the system is roughly the same. So it's this kind of, I suppose like what the home office would call legal, immigration um yeah or the way that that's um administrated uh yeah what was i going to say yeah so i'm making a film kind of using some material from that and the title the lost ones is a title of a samuel beckett yeah story short story it's a novella i okay. think but it's very it's very short um yeah and it's not um i suppose the reason that it's still called that uh is that so my I'm trying to make this film from. Uh, I'm trying to make it about. Uh, it's about <laughs> the, the UK population rather than, however, we would term you know the the others that are trying to enter the country. It's about this kind of environment rather than, right, okay. necessarily the victims of it. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, How do you make a film about the background? Then? <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, I'm saying about, anti- and that's like these terms that I'm trying to avoid, like yeah. saying that it like deals with or addresses these situations because I'm not sure whether it really does or whether I'm capable I'm not, of doing that through an artwork. But I'm using the word engage with at the moment. Engage with, yeah, because you like trying to use it as as medium and form rather than trying to portray it or represent it. Sometimes, well, I think it's yeah, I think it's subject matter. I'm trying to use okay, it as okay. subject matter, but in a responsible way what stage are you at in the project that's probably a good way to start. yeah so it's got a uh i don't really want to sort of describe exactly what it's going to be yeah, but yeah. uh it has a script um i have a bunch of performers that are kind of signed up to be in it um i usually use not unlike the jump room actually usually i've i've used improvised performance rather than scripted performance mm. so parts of this are scripted but they're it's kind of scripted as um questions for people to respond to um so in some ways it sort of apes uh the format of like an immigration interview 
um, or so the they're questions process. taken from yeah they're kind of forms. yeah derived from it so they're, they're adapted and added to I mean the other element within this film which is going to sound very um, uh, strange now is uh, this story that I came across and other people might know f uh, through a book that came out fairly recently about this uh, talking mongoose uh, yeah, called man, Jeff. Jeff yeah so <laughs> Jeff was a, <laughs> a talking mongoose that supposedly lived in a family's house on the Isle of Man. And Jeff was this like, like intelligent creature that lived inside the walls of their house and sort of shouted at them and abused them and threw things at them, but also would sort of um, sometimes be very friendly and kind of promise to reveal himself to... Um, interested parties that would visit the house and then maybe the family would be able to get out of their quite severe poverty by making Jeff into this kind of attraction in some way. And there were interested parties, people went over and yeah, stayed. Yeah, yeah, there was loads of like, it's um, a time when spiritualists were like very active and people would, it was a known thing, it was like written about in papers and yeah. uh, there were lots of uh, experts who sort of believed this this story. But it's commonly um, understood now to be some kind of fantasy yeah. in the family. Well, it's interesting because they never know. So there's three people in this family and none of them ever sort of revealed any part of what was actually going on. Um, so it's just not known like who. So there was a, some people did hear a voice like visitors to the house would hear this voice. Um, but it's not known who was kind of who that voice was like whether it was maybe the daughter ventriloquizing. Um, or something else. Yeah, um, there were kind of various theories about who was doing what yeah, within that, but yeah, it, yeah. it was never kind of decisively proved. Or yeah, none of the family ever said. Yeah, it was. It was just a stupid thing that was. Yeah. Made. So I suppose what I what uh, what I was interested in with with that story in this kind of context is that this family, one way of looking at it is that they created this kind of malevolent presence that was torturing them and like, ordering them about. Uh, that was kind of, as far as their story goes, that was kind of out of their control mm. and was making their lives miserable at times. Um, and they're kind of locked into this kind of small, uh, well, literally a house. They live in this house on an island. They're kind of isolated and they can't find a way out of this situation. They can't make it work for them. Like it never really brought in any money for them. Uh, and yeah, they were kind of trapped in this situation. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that kind of <laughs> how's that going to feed in? Uh, is the, the off the off is the voice off screen or something? Is that I can't yeah? There's going to be a, uh, a voice uh, of an, an unseen kind of interrogator. Yeah, uh, and they're going to have malevolent vibes. Yeah, they are <laughs> very much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, uh, where it's at is that um, we're kind of gearing up to building a set um, and. Yeah, just having these quite um, s experimental shooting days. We're shooting over three days. Right. Um, and then it'll all get edited together. So you're working with actors who are kind of interested in improvisation. and Yeah, yeah. Great. Broadly, yeah. Um, they're quite a range. Like some of them are quite experienced uh, people that have done things on stage and on TV and then some of them are not actors really at all. Just... So do you direct? Is that your role? Um, I don't really know what my role is going to be on this one. In the past, I would have been uh, perhaps like asking these questions. Right, um, yeah. I'm not going to be doing that this time. There's a there's a voice actor that's going to be 
the question questioner questionnaire um <laughs> so i don't really know what i'm going to be doing maybe i won't be doing much at all i'll just sort of set it off and see how do you what, feel when you, like in those situations in which i have not trying to freak you out but in, whenever i have like a few days to do something and when i'm asking people to do something for me even if i'm paying them i find it um incredibly i find it horrifying actually like the few days before it i tend to have like extreme feelings of dread terror yeah. and it's fine it's always fine in the end but how do you kind of go into those do you, do you freak out or do you like do you yeah prepare I think, over a long yeah time? i uh feel similar to you i think um i really dread them but then um it's really important to me that people who are involved in that kind of process are kind of well hosted in a yeah. sense yeah uh yeah like you say even if they're getting paid um they need to that needs to be an experience that is something in and of itself as yeah. well as you know on the way to producing a film of mine yeah um how do you do that uh well in the past i've uh tried just to be really nice to people <laughs> <laughs> um i'm a bit like with this one because the subject matter is quite difficult i think oh, okay. um just dealing with things around immigration and all the kind of baggage around that. Um, I mean, I suppose they all know that that is the subject. They don't know exactly what they're going to be asked. Are some um, of them in that process, or is it...? Um, some of them have been involved with it, yeah. Right, okay. So they're yeah. people who might have experiences of immigration. They Well, yes. They're all, they're all um, British-born, um, so I kind of specified that. Um, but some of them do have, you know, some experience of, of becoming... A, subjects to the home offices inquiries yeah. i mean i suppose things that i've done in the past are maybe a bit more well less contentious like uh, i've done things around like elements of local history or local architecture or stuff like that which is obviously you can get into difficult territory with with anything uh but i don't really know what i'm trying to say here but yeah I, uh, yeah i'm quite interested as in you're you're worried about kind of getting them to talk about something that is contentious and then be on film for the rest of their lives kind of thing yes that's ah. a good way of putting it yeah yeah, yeah that's it um, yeah but i mean also because they're playing because there's no script and we're in a sense interrogating them like it's not going to be a the the film the the time that they're on camera it's we're not going to be being nice to them <laughs> yeah sure, it's going to yeah. be like a voice that they can't see that's going to be saying quite kind of harsh um harsh things to them um so I suppose, yeah, in more practical terms, aside from just being nice to them, um, it's things like making sure there's lots of time yeah, uh, so no one's like rushed in and out. Uh, if someone has an issue, there's time to sort of talk it over and make sure that they still feel all right about being in it. Um, m making sure that they, they don't, you know, it, it could be that they actually come out of the shoot not wanting to be in it. Um, yeah. So I, I wouldn't insist on their participation in the final film um and then we i tend to work because the the performers have got a real range of experience and education in performance or whatever um we have a kind of workshop uh improv um i don't know what to call this role like director of actors <laughs> mm, okay. um someone who's much more experienced with performance than i am someone that teaches acting and improv that's great um so they're going to be there to sort of prepare the the lesser less experienced people and is that uh, someone you it. knew already is that someone you got no, through, a, the, uh, through through fu 
yeah, it was someone that we recruited as part of the project. That's great. What other what other elements? Because obviously they provide money, but they also kind of provide production support. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, Have they helped you find I think it would any be different other? For every, uh, yeah, they've helped. Um, well, the main thing is they provide a production manager. Oh, great! And I'm so used to. Well, I'm not used to, but I've I've always just done that kind of stuff for myself. Yeah. And it's just, it's amazing to have someone who's fully like on board with the project. Well, not on board, but they're employed by the project. Uh, and just to have someone to talk things over with. Mm. Um, and to just sort of be there and be more like a team doing mm. this thing. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, that's quite daunting because people are investing their time and professional efforts in my ideas. Mm. Um but yeah, that's that's been the main difference, really. Like uh, aside from the budget, so you're not having to be responsible for the space that, like, they found the space to shoot, or they've helped you. Not exactly, but yeah, they they would they would do, I guess, if, sure. I, if that had been a problem. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I was looking at that um, the book that we were talking about. I was look, I was rereading it on the way here. The the jump room book. Oh right, yeah. Uh, like I wrote an introductory text for that book, sort of as the artist but also as the person who project managed those works and it's a really i think i've written that in a really weird way that's like interesting like you couldn't just lose that project management bit and just talk as an artist you kind of ended uh, up incorporating that in yeah well i suppose i wanted it to have maybe that's the kind of text that ordinarily maybe a curator would write or yeah or, or i don't know just someone else who wasn't <laughs> wasn't invested in the same way that i was um, someone who's a bit outside of it. Uh, do you see like your whatever career or practice as it's developed? Do you feel like you've been able to pass off roles to other people? Then is that is that a kind of process that you're happy to do? Some people, you know, want to kind of maintain control, but obviously within, especially if you're trying to make film or video, it's yeah. actually very hard. Well, to... uh, no, I think I've kind of gotten. I, I really like handing over things to other people like this current one the lost ones also there's a musician that's going to make some music for it and I, i'm not a musician at all but in the past i've made large bits of soundtracks for my own work <laughs> that's good um, just stepping up being like right i can do this yeah well just sometimes <laughs> it's just come to that like oh there's no there's no yeah. musician so yeah yeah I, I suppose it'll be me um but yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to that as a not a collaboration exactly but just like a bit of it that someone else is just going to you know, have their own take on. And I think that's sort of come out of the performances, really. Like, just sort of trusting people to do something else like, and, like, chuck it into this project. Yeah. Um, Which is sense. different. It is different from collaboration. So much, so often in art, people talk about collaboration, but in other worlds, it would be just people's roles in a project. Yeah. And it's nice to know when that distinction what mm. what that distinction is and like why mm. it's important sometimes yeah like you I guess your job in, if you're working with a musician is to tell them what you want mm. and then kind of give them feedback throughout whereas collaborating is a whole different kind of yeah I think fish. yeah collaborating is a heavy term that's used quite freely I mm. think I mean I quite I think it works better for me to just set very clear boundaries like um different state like I was talking to someone earlier today like about another project where I worked with uh, I worked in this village in Merseyside on Merseyside and uh, people from that village volunteered to be part of this film that I was making and we almost treated the shoot as its own entity 
So the shoot was one thing. And I made it clear from the start that like there would be video material generated from it. And then that would be mine. You know, like I would take that away right. and make a video out of so it. So there's a transaction there. Yeah. And then, but that just meant that we put a lot of emphasis on making those shooting days really productive in, in other ways other than creating this video material. Yes. That makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. They were, they were like events in their own right. Um, and that with that project, that that felt like it worked quite well, I think. Um, yeah. Is that what you aim to do for this? Or is that a, a bit different because they, that sounds like volunteers or... It is a bit different, but I think there's still a an echo of that. Like, mm. I, I don't want it to feel like a, a traditional... Well, not traditional, but like a standard film or TV shoot. Mm. It's very kind of orientated towards getting these certain things, you know, in, within a certain time. Yeah. It needs to be a bit more exploratory than that. And yeah, but definitely not to the point of it, of it being collaborative with yes. the performers. Like, I think it's interesting collaboration, isn't it? Especially in the, um, more like the situation you described with the volunteers where people are part of a project for a small amount of time and they, it's out of their own choice to kind of be part of that project. And then the kind of responsibility of almost being a co-author is kind of foisted on them at the end. Mm. And it's often not actually made clear what be- what benefit being the author of an artwork yeah. <laughs> might might be to the artist who's like initiated the project. You can see what the benefit of being the author of the, of the thing is. Mm. But to people who are kind of playing a specific role or or volunteering or something. I'm not quite sure what that Yeah, well, it's, it potentially puts more... It lays more responsibility on them, but not necessarily any more power for them. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why we'd be wary of it, I think. And in the situation... I mean, obviously, it's, it's much clearer in the situation where you're employing someone. It's good with the production manager as well, because you can just blame them if anything goes wrong. <laughs> Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I presume so, Yeah. Thanks so much to Richard for talking to me. If you want to go and see his exhibition, Going Gone, he's uh, in that exhibition with Webb Ellis, the artist duo. It's on right now at Joward Space in London until the 2nd of June, and it's really worth seeing the film. Thanks for listening to the podcast. All right, bye. <laughs>